This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 this morning. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, so just turn all the way to the front and then go a little bit over to the right and find the big number 20. Typically what we do here at Christ Church is we pick one book of the Bible and go through it systematically. But over the past few weeks, we've been in a short series that's been taking us to various parts of Scripture. We've been calling this series Quorum Deo, which is a phrase that was used in the early church to talk about living before the face of God. So often we can live self-consumed lives. But God wants to rescue us from that and give us a more soul-satisfying life by providing us a vision of himself that completely reorients everything about us. In this series, we have seen what it means to live before the glory of God. We have seen what it means to live with zeal in God. We have seen what it means to live in the goodness of God. This morning as we come to Exodus chapter 20, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 18 through 21 and considering what it means to live in the fear of God. Now I know that phrase, fear of God, can sometimes bring up some bad feelings in us. Fear can often be used as a scare tactic to coerce or even oppress people, to manipulate or control. And if that is how the fear of God has ever been taught to you, uh, I'm sad um, because that is certainly not what Scripture means when it talks about the fear of the Lord. You see, Scripture, far from fear of the Lord being a negative thing, when Scripture talks about the fear of the Lord, it actually presents it something that is life-giving. Psalm 19, verse 9 says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Psalm 25, 14 says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. Psalm 31, 19 says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. Psalm 33, 18 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 3.7-8 Fear the Lord and turn from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Isaiah 33.6 The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Isaiah 11.3 His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Acts 9, 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord, And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. 
Those scriptures paint a picture for us that the fear of God, far from being something that is negative and oppressive, the fear of God is actually a cleansing experience. It brings to us the nearness of friendship with God. It's part of experiencing His abundant goodness. It connects us to hoping in His steadfast love. It's the foundation of all knowledge. It is healing and refreshment. It is peace and holiness. It is a delight and a treasure and a comfort. And so maybe there's something more to fearing God than what we typically might think. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to Exodus chapter 20. The context here of what we're about to read is that God had rescued the people of Israel from their slavery to Egypt by sending in this guy named Moses to be their leader. Moses had taken them out of Egypt and led them to this mountain, Mount Sinai, and God spoke with Moses there and gave him the Ten Commandments, the law of God. The Ten Commandments describe God's will for how his people should live. God had just finished giving Moses his Ten Commandments out Mount Sinai, and as he did, as God spoke to Moses on the mountain, there was thunder and lightning. The mountain was clothed in darkness and smoke, and it shook. Imagine the most powerful storm you've ever seen, and increase that by about a thousand. That's what's taking place in what we're about to read. Let's turn our attention to God's Word. Now when all the people saw the thunder, and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid. And trembled, and they stood far off, and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but let God, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer, asking God to speak to us through the preaching of his word. And I want to encourage you, actually, just to have a time of prayer between you and God. And just ask God, Lord, help me to be open to what I'm about to hear. And now, if you'd be so kind, please pray also for me that I would be strengthened to speak in a way that's helpful to you and glorifying to the Lord. God, thank you that you love us. And part of how you love us is that you speak to us. You speak to us through the word that you've written. And you, and you speak to us as your word is preached. Because God, I pray that you would just come. And right now you would address our hearts. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, may a far better sermon be heard than the one I'm actually going to give. I pray this, Lord God, so that these people here, all of us, we might be edified. So that your name might be glorified. And so that all your enemies might be glorified. We praise things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. This morning, I'd like us to consider two things from this text. First, I want us to look at what the fear of the Lord is. What is this fear of God that 
that's being talked about, what the fear of the Lord is. And then second, we're going to consider what the fear of the Lord produces. As we, as we walk in the fear of the Lord, what is that meant to look like in our lives? And so first, what the fear of the Lord is. This passage starts with the people seeing the thunder and, he, and the lightning and smoke, and the whole mountain is actually moving. <laughs> and verse 18 says that they are afraid. And not just kind of afraid, it says they are trembling. What they're feeling in their hearts is manifesting itself in their bodies. These people are scared shook. Which makes sense, because that's like what sane people do when you see a mountain that's like filled with smoke and fire and lightning. You know, I don't know about you, but I would also be very afraid uh, of what was going on there. You know, you see something like that, and like, that's not time to sit there and take some pictures. That's a time to get on your camel and run in the opposite direction. It's no wonder these people are afraid. But Moses says in verse 20, do not fear. Do not fear. It's like, okay, Moses, so why should we not be afraid of this mountain that is smoking? He says, do not fear, for God has come to test you. That phrase, test you, does not mean test in order to see if you can pass the test. This isn't talking about some kind of exam. No, Hebrew scholar John Durham helps us understand what this phrase means when he writes this in his commentary on Exodus. He says, this means to test or to prove in the sense of trying something on or experiencing something in depth firsthand. It is a reference to a direct and palpable encounter. And so Moses is saying, do not be afraid. God wants to give you an in-depth and firsthand experience. He wants to give you a palpable encounter with himself. And through this encounter that the people are going to have with God, God wanted them to know what it meant to walk in the fear of him. And so on the one hand, God says, don't be afraid. I've come to have an encounter with you, so you then might know how to walk in the fear of me. And so we see that fear is being used here in two different senses. There's fear that is scared, fear that is being afraid. That's that's not what God wants for us. But then there's the fear of being in awe. There's the fear that is a holy reverence. Fear that is full of wonder and humble adoration. That is the kind of fear that God wants us to have for him. The fear of the Lord is being overcome with the grandeur and greatness and glory of who God is. I like how Pastor Tony Evans says it. The fear of God is taking God more seriously than anything or anyone else. When you are overcome with the grandeur and greatness and glory of who God is, well, this is what you do. You take God a lot more seriously than you take anyone or anything else. In my role as team chaplain for the Phillies, I was once on a road trip with them in Texas, and as I was coming out of their clubhouse, coming into their clubhouse, was former president George W. Bush. He was coming in to talk to the team. Now, regardless of what you might think of him as a president, let me just tell you, there's a certain kind of awe that hits you when you're in the presence of such a powerful person. 
To be clear, I wasn't scared of him. He posed no physical threat to me. And yet I took a big gulp. And my stomach was flip-flopping. And I stood there and shook hands with the man who used to be the most powerful person in the world. I wasn't afraid of him, but I did fear him. That that's what this passage is getting at. And if that's how I felt about a former president who's just a man, how much more so should we have an awestruck, holy reverence for the creator of all? Scripture in many places gives us these anthropomorphic pictures that are meant to just make us blown away by the greatness of God. An anthropomorphic picture is a picture that, 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 that gives you God in a physical body. God doesn't actually have a physical body. God is spirit. But scripture gives these analogies, if you will, through talking about God in physical terms to help us understand just how amazing God really is. One of the places that scripture does this is in Isaiah chapter 40. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, we're told, Who has measured the waters and the hollows of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? This is how big God is. He measures the waters and the hollows of his hand. Our earth is full two-thirds of water. The largest measure we have to measure the volume of water is a gallon. Our earth is full of 352 quintillion gallons of water. I don't know what a quintillion is, so I looked it up. Here's actually, we have the number, just so you can get an idea of what, of what that is. That is one quintillion. I can't even understand what we're looking at. The earth is full of 352 gallons of water of that. This number, if you think about it, begins to just defy comprehension. And Scripture says that God holds it in the hollows of his hand. I tried to measure how much water I could hold in the hollow of my hand, and it was about a tablespoon full. That's all of the world's waters compared to God. Just a tablespoon full. As A4.12 says, Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? The universe, the heavens, has trillions and trillions of stars. Some theorize that it's actually ever-expanding. Again, I have no idea what that even means, but it sounds really cool. The heavens is, is so big that no scientist has been able to actually calculate how massive it truly is. But God knows what is incalculable to us. Well, we don't even have the measurements to measure. God just takes a couple of his fingers and marks it off with a span of them. Isaiah 40, verse 15 says, For all the nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket. The might of the Roman Empire, the longevity of the Chinese dynasties, the strength even of our current nuclear powers, drop in a bucket to God. Literally that word, drop in a bucket, uh, that phrase, it, it means a droplet of moisture. All the world's most powerful nations from all time, all totaled together, are nothing more than a droplet of moisture before God. Isaiah 40, verse 15 goes on to say, He picks up the whole earth 
as if it was a grain of sand. Take a handful of sand and can you even identify a grain in it? Grains of sand are so small you actually need to put them under a microscope in order to see them. That's what the whole earth is to God. A microscopic grain of sand. This is how great God is. There's a story, and I couldn't actually confirm if the story is true, but I hope it's true because it's really good. Um, but there's a story that, that, that Albert Einstein visited a church one time, and he left in disappointment because he said, I've studied the vastness of the universe, and their God is too small. Friends, if that happened, then that church that he went to was not talking about the God of the Bible. Because God, how God reveals himself to be in the Bible is that he is too vast to be weighed by any scale. He is too infinite to be calculated by any number. He's too immense to be measured by any length. As Psalm 145.3 says, his greatness is unsearchable. You can't get to the bottom of it. He's beyond what we could possibly understand. And the response that we should have to God's incomprehensibility is awe and wonder. It is reverence and humility. It is adoration and devotion, veneration and worship. We should not dare to approach this God casually. If we're being flippant with him, then we are not rightly understanding him. To behold God is to be filled, not with a scared dread, but with a holy fear. In the words of the child's book, Chronicles of Narnia, talking about Aslan, the great king, they said if someone can stand before him without their legs knocking, they've lost leave of their senses. Friends, if we can think about this great, mighty, awesome, vast, incomprehensible God and not be filled with a knee-shaking knee reverence and awe that we've lost leave of our senses. The fear of the Lord is being overcome with the greatness, grandeur, grandeur and glory of who God is. It is taking God more seriously than anyone or anything else. This is what the fear of the Lord is. Let's consider now what the fear of the Lord produces. What the fear of the Lord produces. There are so many things that the fear of the Lord is meant to produce in our lives. But this text draws our attention to three things. First, the fear of the Lord produces conviction before the Lord. The fear of the Lord produces conviction before the Lord. The, the Israelites were seeing the greatness of God put on display in this mountain, and they don't want to get near to that. Why? Not just because the mountain was smoking, although that certainly must have been terrifying, but because before the mountain smoked, God told Moses to say this to the people in Exodus chapter 19, verse 12. He says, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. As God gave his law to Moses, it was a holy moment, and the sinful people were not to come near to that. And I just have to wonder if at first when Moses went up, he said, hey, don't come near the mountain. 
you might die. Maybe the people in their arrogance kind of rolled their eyes. Okay, here we go, you know, melodramatic Moses. Tell us we're all going to die. But then as they saw the mountain smoke, as they heard the thunder, as they beheld the lightning, no wonder they become terrified and they stand far off. As they saw the greatness of God put on display, they became very aware that, yes, we can't get near to that. Because sinful people cannot come near to the holy God. When sinful people see a holy God, what should be provoked in us is an awareness that we are not like that, and so we should do what they say, uh, uh, don't let this God come near to us lest we die. If you were with us a few weeks ago, isn't this the same response that Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 6? He sees the glory of God. He says, woe is me. I deserve to die. Seeing the greatness of God, well, friends, it just flat out exposes us. Have you ever moved a piece of furniture that was in one place for a long time? Right, You move it, and all of a sudden, all the things that you've been living with in your home that you knew were probably there, but you weren't looking at. All of a sudden, you see them. All that dust, all those crumbs, all those socks that you've been searching everywhere for. Right? You couldn't see those things when they're hidden, but when the furniture is moved, and when what is in the dark is brought out into the light, then they get revealed. And now you have to deal with it. Friends, this is what the fear of the Lord should produce in us. When we see the light of God's glorious greatness... All of the sudden, the stuff that was in our lives already, that we weren't really paying attention to, that we didn't think was actually that big a deal, all the wrongs that we can do and so easily excuse, all of a sudden, all those things all become exposed. And we should become aware that we can't approach this God because to come near to the holy God as a sinful person is to invite death. The people were right to be convicted of their sin and aware they could not draw near to God. And Moses was also right. As he told them, they actually did not need to be scared. Because Moses knew this holy God that they were seeing put on display before them had actually not come to destroy them. But this was the holy God who had saved them. This is what happened in Moses' dialogue with the Lord. Before God gave his law to Moses, God reminds Moses of who he is. Look back up at verse 2 of chapter 20. God says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, this awesome, all-powerful God is the same God who had chosen to bend his will for the people's good and to be their savior, their deliverer. And their deliverance from their slavery to Egypt was a foreshadowing of a greater deliverance that was to come. For in Jesus, the holy God, the great God, the one from whom we deserve nothing but death for our life of sin, he did not come into this world to condemn this world. He says he came to this world to save this world. He did not come to be our judge, but to be our savior. The omnipotent creator stepped into creation and became one of us so that he could stand in the place of us on the cross. 
and face the judgment and take the punishment that we deserve for our sins. Friends, he didn't have to. He's the great almighty God. He doesn't have to do anything. And he could have been just as easily glorified by obliterating us. God does not blush when he enacts his justice. He could have been just as easily glorified by enacting justice on the world and judging it all, and yet he chose not to glorify himself by being only a judge. He wanted to glorify himself by also being the Savior. And so in Jesus, God came to be judged for us. He could not just turn a blind eye to our sin because that would be injustice. And yet he chose not just to judge us for our sin because he wanted to love us in Christ. And so on the cross, you see the justice of God and the mercy of God kissed because of the love of God as Jesus came to die for guilty sinners. He didn't have to. Friends, Jesus died because he wanted to for you. He said, no one takes my life. I choose to lay it down. He chose to do that for you and for me. He was on the cross because that's exactly where he wanted to be. Because as God says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God chose his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, there's no greater love than this. But we will only appreciate this love of God to the extent that we understand our sinfulness before God. It's easy to love lovable people. The point that God is making to us here is that we're not lovable people. God does not love us because we're lovely. He loves us because he has chosen to be loving. God's love is amazing because it's a love that's not deserved. It's a love that comes through his mercy and through his grace. And so actually, as we see the greatness of God and we become aware of our conviction of sin, that should lead us to then worship God who loves us even in our sin and sent Jesus to be our Savior to rescue us for our sin. Like as our great view of the grace of God goes up, our view of our sinfulness should go even down. But you know what happens? The cross just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as we see the greatness of God's love for us in Jesus. And so friends, if you want to grow in your love for God, if you want to feel more affections for the Savior, then walk in the fear of the Lord. It will produce conviction in you as you see the sinfulness of your sin. But seeing the sinfulness of our sin is that it allows us to then taste and see the sweetness of our Savior. Friends, it's a good thing that the fear of the Lord produces conviction in us. Because it's the conviction in us that then leads us to appreciate God's salvation of us. The fear of the Lord produces conviction before the Lord. Second, the fear of the Lord produces longing for the Lord. The fear of the Lord produces longing for the Lord. Back in our text, we see that the Israelites were scared of this God they were encountering. But Moses says, do not be afraid, but you need to walk in the fear. And then to demonstrate what it means to not be scared of God, but to walk in the fear of God, what does Moses do? It says Moses walks back into the presence where God was. You see, when we're in all of the Lord, while there should be a healthy respect and reverence, and in some ways even an unease, because we're just so aware of how glorious he is, 
yet there should still be a desire to be near to him because of how glorious he is. God's glory should not repel us from him, but actually draw us to him. I felt uncomfortable in the presence of President Bush. That's also exactly where I wanted to be. I wasn't going to miss out on that opportunity. So seeing the greatness of God, friends, it's not meant to push us away, but it's meant to draw us near. And in many ways, I think this is what we're actually all looking for. We all have a longing. We all have a hunger. We all have a desire for something more. And so often we can trace that desire for more through all kinds of different things. We look for more approval from people. We look for more accomplishments, more accolades, more education, more opportunities, more money, more sex, more porn, more food, more just material things, more stuff, more travel, always looking for the next experience. And we can try to fill the longing we all feel with all kinds of more, but nothing ever truly satisfies us, and so do we need? We just need more. Nothing ever truly satisfies us because the longing that we have for more is something that can only be satisfied with a greater vision of the greatness of God. I was so struck by a line in the movie, Jesus Revolution. If you haven't seen it, I would actually commend it to you. It's a fascinating movie about the Jesus movement uh, where thousands and thousands of people became Christians in a short period of time. And largely they became Christians uh, being, coming out of like a hippie lifestyle. And there's this line where there's this former hippie who's now a Christian. He's talking with his pastor, and this pastor's all grumpy because all these hippies are doing all these drugs. And the former hippie says, well, why do you think they're doing drugs, man? They're searching for the divine. Now, how they were searching was destroying their lives. But what they were looking for, what they were searching for, friends, it's what we're all searching for. It's an encounter with the divine. We, we have been built with a longing that's meant to act like an internal compass directing us to the only one who is enough, the only one who is great enough, the only one who is large enough, the only one who is vast enough, the only one who is truly divine. Friends, the more we need is more of God, more of an understanding of how truly awesome he is, more of a reverence for his glory. I was talking to someone once who was in the process of transitioning from their gender uh, that they had at birth to something that they felt aligned more with their concept of themselves. And they were so confused because everything in our culture had told them that this transition would bring them peace. But it wasn't bringing them the peace they so desperately desired. And my heart just broke for them because I could see the pain that they were in. And I was so grateful that I didn't have to stay silent. I was so grateful that I could tell them about who God is and the great love that he had for them. And so we just went to scripture and we just talked about this is who God is. Who God is is he's the one who holds the stars in space. Who God is is he is the one who raises up the mountain and lowers the seas. Who God is is he's the one who knows the amount of hairs on your head. He's this massive God, and yet he's an intimate God who knows you even better than you know yourself. And he loves you. And he died for you. And we just, we just walked through the gospel together. And as we talked about how great 
and magnificent, how massive and yet how loving this transcendent God is. As we talked about, he's the one who can actually tell us who we are. He's the one who designed us with our gender and our very DNA. He writes who we are all the way down to our molecular level. As we talked about this, and all in reverence just fell upon this person. And he actually started crying and said, I think this is what I've been looking for, and I didn't even know it. I've been looking for him. Now, I don't want to give you the false impression that every conversation goes that way. But I do share that story with you to encourage you that they can go that way. Friends, every person has an inbuilt longing to be with God, even if they don't know it. And what I need and what you need, what everyone needs is a greater fear of the Lord, a greater reverence, a greater awe and holy amazement of who he is. Because all the longings of our souls can only be satisfied in the greatness of who he is. The fear of the Lord produces conviction before the Lord. It produces a longing for the Lord. And then finally, the fear of the Lord produces obedience to the Lord. The fear of the Lord produces obedience to the Lord. This encounter with God, this desire God had for his people to be filled with a holy, appropriate fear, an awestruck reverence of him, it's not by chance that this is happening after he gave his law to them. God gave them the Ten Commandments, and then he shows them a vision of the greatness of who he is. Because God wanted their obedience to him to be grounded in their vision of how awesome this God truly is. Throughout Scripture, we see that the fear of the Lord is linked to walking in obedience to God's commands. And so Psalm 112, 1 says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Or Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, The end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Part of the prophecy of what would happen when the Savior came, when Jesus came, part of the prophecy of what would happen is that God would come and he would write his law upon our hearts. Jeremiah 31, 33. I'll put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Whereas the prophet Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 36, and I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of flesh, a stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God's saying when, when, when Christ comes, God's going to do a work inside of us so that following God's commands is not something that we have to do. No, because we have a heart of flesh, it's something that we want to do. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And what does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17? He says, do not think I've come to abolish the law. Don't get that wrong. I've not come to abolish the law of the prophets. Uh, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, so meaning not until like the end of all times, not an oda, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus is clearly saying the law isn't going anywhere. And we need to follow it. Now, we need to understand that our salvation is not predicated upon, it's not based upon our obedience. Our salvation before God is not achieved by our obedience to God. Scripture makes this abundantly clear. I give you like thousands of scriptures. I'll just give you one for the sake of time. 
Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. We cannot justify ourselves before God by perfectly keeping his law because we fail to perfectly keep his law all the time, which is why Jesus came. Right? Jesus came to be our perfect sacrifice so that our sin could be paid for by him. But as we place our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and gives us that heart of flesh that now wants to follow the law of God. And so the question we should ask at this point is, so what is this law? What is this law that God wants us to follow? That's a pretty important question to answer because we can't walk in what we don't know about. When Jesus was asked, what is the law of God? He said, all of God's law can be summed up in two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 and 38. But we need to understand that as Jesus said that, he wasn't actually saying anything new. In the ancient Israelite context, those two things, love God and love neighbor, were commonly understood as a summary of the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses here in Exodus chapter 20. If you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, you know the first four tell us about how we are to love God. So we don't just love God based on our terms. No, God has defined for us how he wants us to love him. That's what the first four commandments are all about. And then love our neighbor is not just something that we kind of like put our finger in the wind and just try to figure out. No, God's actually told us how we are to love our neighbor. That's what the second part, the other six commandments are all about. And so Jesus affirms for us that these 10 commandments, they are the eternal law of God. They are for all people for all time. And so as we read the Old Testament, we need to understand the Old Testament can really be split into three categories. On the one hand, there is the, the eternal, also known as the moral law of God. These are the laws that get, that get fleshed out in the Ten Commandments. And then, and then basically, uh, when you have the Ten Commandments, the, 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 the Ten Commandments then, they give the law, and then there's a bunch of other case laws about how that law is to be applied. Right? So if you're familiar with the law, you have like a law, don't speed, and then there's like case law that happens when people do speed, and this is what happens, that will, that's how it gets fleshed out, right? That, that's what happens in the Old Testament as well. So for example, one of the Ten Commandments is you should not murder. And then if you go on to read in the Old Testament, there's all kinds of different ways that case law gets used about what different ways that we can murder people, and we shouldn't do that, right? But the, the law is don't murder, and then there's the case laws, here's how you shouldn't do that. Or for example, the law says you should not commit adultery. And then the Old Testament law gives all kinds of ways that we can then get involved in sexual sin and therefore commit adultery. So those moral laws are further illustration of the eternal law, and therefore they never pass away. And then there are the civil and ceremonial laws, which were laws that were specific to the nation state of Israel. So for example, their dietary food laws, or their laws about their military, or the laws about their priesthood. Those laws have passed away because they're not part of the Ten Commandments, they're not part of the eternal law, but were temporary guidelines for how Israel is supposed to conduct itself as a nation. That's a very short summary of a very complex subject. But the point is this. Having a holy reverence for God should produce in us a desire to please God through being obedient to God. Having a holy reverence for God should produce in us a desire to please God through being obedient to God. In order to obey God, we need to know what the law of God is about, and we need to obey it. Now, for us in our culture, we need to understand, like, as soon as I say this, and I just want you to recognize, like, I'm very aware that culture, in our culture, obedience is a dirty word. Obedience is a bad word. We're not supposed to obey anything except ourselves, right? We're to be true to us. Be who you want to be. We're, we're to answer no authority outside of our own authority as defined in the trinity of me, myself, and I. 
right? That, 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 this, is, this is the God that our culture holds forth to us. And so in our culture, that's a selfie culture, obedience is a bad word. But we need to understand that in any healthy relationship, aren't there always rules to a relationship in order to keep it healthy? And if you're in a relationship and you're enjoying relation, that relationship, those rules are not oppressive. They're actually life-giving. As I was dating Angie, who, for those who don't know, that's my wife. As I was dating her, the more I got to know her, the more amazed I was by her, the more eager I became to make some wedding vows to her. By the grace of God, it's been my joy to fulfill those vows, those rules of our relationship, if you will, for the past 15 years. Friends, the more amazed we are at God, the more we should be blown away by how truly awesome he is. And therefore, the more his commands are not going to be a burden to us. They're actually going to be a joy for us to walk in. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, 28, verse 30, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. God wants to bring rest to our souls. He wants to lead us into good places of peace and wholeness. And so he gives his law as a yoke to us. A yoke was what was placed on oxen so that their farmer could direct them in the ways they were to go. Right? God puts his yoke on us. He directs us through his commands so that he can, we can go in the ways that he wants us to go. But his yoke is not going to be harmful to us. His yoke is not going to hurt us. His yoke is not going to be a burden to us. No, it's a yoke that is easy. It is a yoke that actually leads us to good places of rest and peace and life. And so while our culture says that peace comes through you learning how to be true to you, the reality is that God says, no, it comes through us learning to be who he has made us to be. You know, the reality is, is that we're actually complex people. And so the world says, just be true to yourself. Like, I sometimes wonder, well, which part of myself am I supposed to be true to? Like, you just actually asked me to do an impossible thing. Because I have competing desires all the time. Right? On the one hand, I desire to be fit. On the other hand, I desire to eat all the tasty cakes. Right? And those are mutually exclusive desires. And so which one is going to be the true me? Which one is going to lead me into wholeness and wellness the way that I think it will. You might say, well, it's very easy, just be fit. But I'm like, no, if I'm going to go out, I might as well go out happy. And so lead me right to the tasty cakes, right? These are competing desires, and the jury's still out, which one's going to win in my life. Um, but the reality is, just tell me, well, just, just, just navigate, be true to yourself. What I, I'm looking inside the inner recesses of my heart, and I don't know who I am. See, our world is actually telling people this is the path to freedom, looking inside of you. But actually, no, friends, it's, it's not, it's a burden. It's not helpful at all, because how are we supposed to sort out who we are? No wonder we live in such stressed out times. But it's the yoke of the Lord that is easy, it's the yoke of the Lord that is light, it's the yoke of the Lord that leads us to good places. The God who loves us knows what is best for us, and therefore he wants to lead us in the way we should go. And so Psalm 19.7 is right when it says the law of the Lord is perfect, and it revives the soul. I think sometimes as Christians... We can feel like God's commands are a burden. And so we resist them because we just want to do our own thing. But then like we wake up and we're like, okay, no, I know God loves me. I know God's good for me. So, so we know it's good for us. But I think then sometimes we can be embarrassed because well, we don't want to talk to other people about it. 
we can be embarrassed about what God says because what God says so often goes against what our culture celebrates. I know for me that at times I can be tempted to almost be apologetic when people ask me what the Bible says about certain things. And I don't want to do it because I know what the Bible says doesn't jive with their life choices. Yet, friends, what this is telling me is that why are we embarrassed about that which is beautiful? Why are we apologetic about that which brings life? If we are seeing the greatness and glory and grandeur of the awesome God, if we're seeing the one who made the stars and holds them in place by the word of his power, and he's the same one who died on the cross to show us his love, this awesome God is the God that we should want to obey because as the original followers of Jesus said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. God's law is not a burden. God's not asking anyone to give up anything that's actually going to be good for them. No, God's word is life. And so as God calls us to follow his commands, he's bringing us into green pastures that are good for us. And not just for us. They're good for everybody. Right? Matthew 28. We read it as we were looking at the, the, the baptism. Right? Let's talk about baptism. What's the commission that God's given us as a church? It says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And sometimes we just stop there. We think the only mission we have is to go tell people the gospel. That's not what Jesus says. He says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that's preaching the gospel, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Friends, if we truly love our families, we truly love our friends and coworkers and neighbors, then we should not want to redefine the mission that God has given us to be a blessing to them. No, actually, we should want to embrace what Jesus says, what he has left us in this world to do. We should tell people the gospel, the good news of Christ, and then we should trace out for them the implications of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. There's nothing that we should want more for them than for them to know the sweet freedom what it means to follow God's commands. There's a big conversation taking place in the American church right now about how we need to dial down this whole idea about command and obedience. We just need, when we talk about God, right? Because there's just a self-awareness that, yes, so much of what God commands us to obey does go against our current cultural narratives and does bring heat on us. But friends, the church doesn't have a right to redefine God's mission, nor should we want to. In these stressed out times when so many people are confused and in pain as a result, how can we leave them in such a place? Friends, what our world desperately needs is the church not to be scared about what God says, but to stand flat-footed on the word of God, outstretched with love in the arms of Jesus, and to proclaim the greatness of who God is and the goodness of what it means to live life in obedience to him. For his way is the way of life. Friends, we don't need to apologize for that which is beautiful and leads to our flourishing. No, we should hold forth Jesus as the Savior and the goodness of what he wants for us in following God's commands. And so as we come to a close, whether you've been a Christian for decades or whether you're still exploring the faith, what we all need, regardless of how we come into this space, what we all need is a greater fear of the Lord. We all need a greater fear of the Lord so that we might be filled with a deeper conviction of our sin 
that leads us to a sweeter appreciation for our Savior so that the longings of our soul are satisfied by seeing more of the glory of who he is and so that we can experience walking in the joy of obedience to what he's called us to do. So Christ Church, don't be afraid of God, but walk in the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Oh, friends, I pray that you would taste and see the sweetness of that fountain and that your fear of the Lord would increase more and more so you might appreciate your Savior more, so that the longings of your soul might be satisfied more, and so that the joy of your obedience might be increased more. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.